The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship our triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. Amen. This is from Ephesians verse, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we praise and thank you because you have blessed us. Before the beginnings of the world, you chose us and redeemed us and adopted us and made us acceptable. You have placed your name on us and welcomed us into your family. Through your Son, we have received every spiritual blessing. And it is now as your people, your family, that we praise you in the name of Jesus. And amen. amen. So you probably know that Easter is coming up in three short weeks. And at Easter, we celebrate that the hostility between mankind and God has been removed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So while sinners once were far off, through Christ we have been brought near, even to a table of peace with God. And it's noteworthy uh, in the Gospels that the good news that Christ is risen was often revealed at a meal. So after walking to Emmaus, Jesus finally revealed himself to the two disciples when they ate bread with them. And then Jesus appears to other disciples and he proves that he's really alive, he's really Jesus. And then he asks, have you any food here? And then he eats some fish and some honeycomb. And then Jesus uh, served an early morning breakfast of fish and bread to Peter and a few other disciples. So we see that as the message of Easter spread, Christ is risen, so spread the meals. So I got a two-fold exhortation for you guys. And this is, uh, Pastor Doug gave this to our church a few years ago, and I'm going to resurrect it this morning. So, pun intended. Here is the exhortation. And this is, this is an exhortation. This is not a mandate. So don't bind your conscience on this. But do take this as an encouragement to heart. So, between now and Easter Sunday, which is three weeks out, I would urge you guys to share a meal with an unbeliever. So between now and Easter, invite someone who has not yet believed that Jesus is the risen Lord to go out and eat together. And this could be someone that you meet at the skate park or at Planet 3 and you just go to Wendy's. Or you invite that single mom with her kids over for a play date and you have snacks together. Or you bring your coworker to the taco wagon on Taco Tuesday, and you have a feast. Or you bring your neighborhood, uh, neighborhood family over for your first barbecue of the spring. All right, so this task is a simple one. Sometime before Easter, break some bread with an unbeliever. Right, that's the first part. And the second part of the exhortation is to simply pray. Pray that God would use this for their good 
and for his glory. And when you have them over, don't get into a sweat about how you're going to bring up the gospel. Right? Don't worry about that. Give it to God, and you aren't selling insurance or dealing with quotas or timelines. Right? You are loving an individual. So there it is. Here's your simple pre-Easter exhortation. Invite a non-Christian over, pray, and see what happens. Because remember, Christ is risen. So there it is. From Ephesians 1. Just as the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Our Father, before we even confess our sins to you, we must confess your great kindness to us. Through your Son, you have redeemed us and forgiven our sin. We, you have comforted us, but far too often we have grown comfortable. We are content to receive the feast of your grace in the gospel, but then we withhold this feast from others. We confess this as our selfishness or fear or unbelief that you can bring transformation through simple means. Please use us as your people to advance your kingdom in Moscow. We know that this will be ineffectual if we harbor unconfessed sin or guilt or merely act through heartless obligation. Make us a people who have seen and believed and have feasted with the risen Christ. And out of that joy, I want to share the same with others. And we now confess our own individual sins to you and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Christian, have you trusted in Christ? Have you confessed your sins through Christ? And if you have, then as a minister of the gospel, then I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, the whole chapter. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, 
thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, you say in Jeremiah that your word is a fire, your word is a hammer. You say also in Hebrews that your word is a sword. And so I ask that you would come and cut and set ablaze and break into pieces the things in our lives that need to be broken. And then I ask that you would put us back together better than we were when we came in. Fill us with your spirit. Fill this house with glory. And we ask all this in Jesus' name and amen. You may be seated. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Genesis 4, 8. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Genesis 30, verse 1. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should release Barabbas instead. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. Mark 15, 9 to 14. Envy kills. Envy is a prelude to murder. It is the poison that pollutes relationships, distorts reality, and ultimately destroys its victims. Envy kills. Envy is what divided the first sons of men, Cain and Abel. And it was envy that killed the Son of God. But love, well, love does not envy. Love is content with whatever God sees fit to give. Where do, what, where do fights and wars come from among you? 
Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James 4, 1-4. Envy is the engine of conflict. It is that unspoken tension between you and that person you wish ill will upon. It is an obsessive an ugly trait to envy someone. It is the mask that pride wears to conceal its own insecurities, our bitterness, and our hatred. Envy is a most evil sin. And yet for all that envy seeks to inflict upon its rival, envy, like every other sin, is suicide. Envy will kill you. But love, love does not envy. Love is content with whatever God sees fit to give. This morning we come to part three in our sermon series through the love chapter. And here in verse four, the apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that the source of all of their problems is that they lack love. So just let me briefly recap where we have been so far in this series. In part one, we learned that without love, we're nothing. We can be gifted and intelligent, bright, well-spoken. We can heal people. We can go translate the Bible into other languages. We can do a bunch of really spiritual things. But Paul says, without love, you're nothing. We're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. In part two, we learn that love is not your feelings. We learn that love is not your feelings. We learn that love is not your feelings. And you still think that love is your feelings, but it's not, people. Love's not your feelings. I'm going to remind you that probably at every one of these. Love is actually a choice you make. It's a decision of the will. It is something you do. And we know it's not your feelings because love is patient when you don't feel like being patient. And love is kind when people are really rude to you. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is how God has treated you. And so we are to love one another the way God has loved us. And now, this morning, we come to the middle of verse 4. You can see with what rapid pace I am going through this chapter We will probably be in this chapter for the rest of the year. Um, So I'm going to cover four words this morning. Love does not envy. There's your main point. There's your application. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes or so unpacking this. So there are three questions that I want to answer this morning, and they are these. Number one, what is envy? What is it? We'll define it. Number two, why are we envious? Why do we do this? And number three, how does love conquer envy? What is envy? Why are we envious? How love conquers envy? Number one, what, what is envy? Uh, there's an excellent book I read uh, last week called Seeing Green by Tilly 
Dillahay, and I would commend it to you to read. It's very good. I actually almost made it through it twice. Um, and it's written by a woman for probably like women's Bible study groups. There's discussion questions at the end. Uh, you should get it. You should read it. Um, but there's a chapter where she gives a bunch of definitions of envy that I thought were very good, uh, kind of from people throughout the ages. And so I want to read to you a sample of what some of the greatest minds you know, ever have said about envy. So what is envy? Aristotle, here's his, his definition. Envy is pain at the sight of others' good fortune. Thomas Aquinas, envy is sorrow for another's good. Augustine, envy is dissatisfaction with our place in God's order of creation, manifested in begrudging his gifts to others. Jonathan Edwards, envy is a spirit of opposition to the happiness of others compared with our own. F.F. Bruce, envy is the grudging spirit that cannot bear to contemplate someone else's prosperity. Frederick Buchner, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. That's a, that's a good one. Uh, Joe Rigney, some of you know, envy is a feeling of unhappiness at the blessing and fortune of others. Um, and lastly, I think this is the one I, I like the most. Harold G. Coffin says, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. That's what envy is. Uh, so let me give you my kind of working summary definition of envy. I thought all these people had a definition. I, I have to have a definition to give you. So here's my shot at it. What is envy? Envy is a failure to thank God for what he has given and a hatred for the person he has given that thing to. You see how there's kind of two sides. There's this dissatisfaction, this discontent. And then there's also this dislike and hatred for the person who does have it. That's what envy is. Um, in the Greek, the word is zelo, which gets translated elsewhere positively as zealous. It's actually the same Greek word. So you think of Jesus cleansing the temple in John 2. It says, zeal for your house will consume me. It's the same Greek word underneath envy. And Jesus goes and overturns tables. So you can think about envy as like the dark side of zeal. It's when zeal goes rogue. It would be like, uh, imagine going over to someone else's house for dinner, and the mom happens to make a dish that, you know, you are known for. It's your specialty. It's the thing that you know, I make that, everyone's going to like it. And so you go over to this house, and you sit down, and what do you know? It's that same dish that you make. So you eat it, you taste it, but oh, it's, it's delicious. You know, it's even more delicious than the way you cook it. And you cannot stand her being a better cook than you. You are zealous. And so what do you do? Well, of course, you... Clear the table. You smash all of the wine glasses. There's mashed potatoes on the ceiling. Right? The kids are crying. You pull the tablecloth out from the table. You 
kick over the chair on your way out of the house. That's what envy does. Dark side of zeal. Now that's a funny example. And now some of you think, I'm off the hook. I've never done that before. And if any of you have, please come, come speak to me after service. I could use that as in a future illustration. So, so envy is zeal gone wrong. Um, but envy is not just acting out against someone you don't like. As we said, it's this dissatisfaction with what God has put into your life. I think uh, Nancy Wilson or uh, Doug's mom says something like, uh, uh, discontentment, or no, what did she say? Envy is like discontentment with, what, uh, with God's sovereignty, something like that. So God is sovereign, he's good, but you don't like what he's put into your life. And I think that's a good way of thinking about uh, envy. One of the ways you know that envy is actually in your heart is that you find it difficult to rejoice in the good fortunes of others. When they get something you really wanted or hoped for, you kind of feel sorry for yourself. You kind of go, I kind of wish, why wouldn't God bless me like that? So, you know, uh, your friends buy a new house, you go over for a housewarming party, and you look around and think, man, I wish I had a nice house like this. I wish I had marble countertops. I wish I had an island in the kitchen. And that's just, you know, petty envy. You're, you aren't able to actually rejoice with them and what God has given them. Or, you know, you're checking the mail, and you think, ah, another save the date. Another wedding invitation. And, and you look at it, and you think, her? Really her? I'm way prettier than her. Right? I mean, I know you guys do this. I have sisters, I know. Or maybe, maybe you see your brother making more money than you, being successful. You see your sister outshining you, getting more attention. You see the achievements and happiness of those around you. And though you say to their face, congratulations, so happy for you. You know you lying. You're dying inside. You can't really rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's how you know that there is envy in your heart. There is this capacity for it in every sinful heart. And it is often not until you see God blessing that person next to you that that feeling becomes aroused. See, envy is tricky. It kind of blindsides you. You think you're good, but just wait until that person shows up and gets that thing. And you realize, oh, what is this? It's envy. Well, this was the problem in the Corinthian church. And it is the problem behind our fights and conflicts in our community here. We count everyone else's blessings and are blind to our own. So I'm not asking if you have an envy problem. I am asking you where that envy problem is. And do you know how to kill it when it rears its ugly head? So uh, in order for us to deal with envy, we should ask the question, why? Why do we envy other people? How is it that we end up here? So number two, why are we envious? Uh, James 3 and 4 is very instructive on envy, conflict, and this dynamic. He says in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. He says that if we have bitter envy and self-seeking in our hearts, we are prone to boast 
and lie against the truth. He then says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So if you read James, you'll notice he puts bitter envy and self-seeking together. These are sins that hold hands, and the root of both of these sins is pride. And you'll remember, you do remember from the first sermon that pride was the Corinthian sin. They thought they were God's gift to mankind. And pride is, well, it's the opposite of love, because pride is self-seeking, while love seeks the good of others. Pride bends everything inward, while love freely, generously, open-handedly gives outward. Have you ever noticed that you only envy people that you compare yourself to? For example, I don't envy your grandma and her ability to make a really good lasagna, okay? Lasagna's great. I'm sure your grandma's great too. I have nothing against her, but I'm not trying to be her. We're not exactly in the same lane. I don't envy you who have the ability to draw and paint beautiful pictures of flowers and people and sunsets, because I've been on stick figures for my whole life. I don't know that they've gotten better. It's wizardry when I see you, you people draw. And so I feel awe, really, not envy, because we're not in the same league. Us guys, you know, we debate who's a better basketball player, LeBron or Michael, you know, Kobe or MJ, pick your guy. But, but I haven't heard anybody debating whether Aaron and LeBron are, you know, who's better. There, there, there's no AV-MJ debate. That, that would be silly, right? Because he's so much better, no one, right? There, there's such a, a wide chasm of degree in skill there that, you know, I just think, yeah, that, that would be dumb. But you know who I would be tempted to envy? Someone that's just like me, but a little bit better. You know, someone that you started comparing me to, and, and you know, you rated him a 4.0, but gave me a 3.9. Or, or for you NSA people, you know, he is summa cum laude. What does summa cum laude mean? I don't, does anyone know? With highest praise. So, so he's an SCL. I'm a CL cum laude with praise. Just a little bit of praise, not, not as much. You see, it, it's someone that's, that's quite a bit like you, but just the better version of you, that, that you're going to be tempted to envy. So who is that for you? Who is that? We tend to envy and hate the people who are most like us, whether we realize it or not. Shakespeare describes this phenomenon in his play Troilus and Cressida with these words. Take but degree away, untune that string and hark, what discord follows. Say that again. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. And he's really saying the same thing that James says. Where there's bitter envy, there's going to be confusion and discord everywhere. And if you're a playwright, well, you should know how to do that. That's why his plays are so great. He knows how to get conflict into his stories. You put twins there. You put siblings there. 
You put couples, and then they mix, and you're like, how does that even happen? Envy. Envy. So, uh, in other words, when the lanes people drive in start to collide, and the distinctions between one another are blurred, we start seeing rivals everywhere. This is what happens when, you know, a peasant suddenly becomes a king or a servant becomes a master or, for example, someone you trained at work becomes your peer and then they get promoted above you and now they're your boss. And oh, how the roles are reversed. And that is a place where envy can creep in. It's the computer hackers who envy other computer hackers. It's the music composers who envy other music composers. I don't know any computer hackers who are envious of the uh, music composers, right? The, The difference in degree is so wide. Envy happens when we start jockeying for position, grasping for power, and hankering for praise. So I ask you, who's in your lane? Who's in your league? Who, who do you compare yourself to? There's someone. Whoever it is, that is the most likely target of your envy. And this is what happened in the Corinthian church. They had all received the Holy Spirit. They had all received spiritual gifts. But they thought it was a competition to see who had the most gifts. To see who is most gifted. Is healing better than tongues? Is preaching better than works of administration? They wanted the flashy gifts. They wanted to show off and show out. And of course, that's when the infighting in the Corinthian church begins. And this would be the easiest thing in the world for a gifted community like ours to fall into. This is why in the first sermon, I made even some, you know, kind of silly comparisons. I said, like, you know, there's the Roman roads people and the Canon press people. There's Whitehorse Hall people. There's Logos people. There's Christ Church people and there's Trinity people. You guys really want to play this game? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? should not be so in the church of God. One of the greatest stories of envy in the Bible is found in the book of Esther. Do you guys remember the story of Haman and Mordecai? Do you guys remember this story? It's really good. Okay, I'm not seeing a bunch of hands, so I'm going to... Okay, (laughs) how long do you want this sermon to go? (laughs) Let me set the scene for, for those of you who don't remember. Haman, he's the bad guy. He's just left a banquet that Queen Esther has put on for him and the king. And he has been invited to come back again tomorrow for a second day of feasting. So Esther 5, 9 to 14, he says this. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Notice the zeal. Right? He's leaving a banquet. This guy won't stand for me. He won't kiss the ring. He won't honor me. And so he's filled with indignation. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Now, this is kind of weird because he... 
He goes home from this feast. He calls his wife and his friends, and he's telling his wife about his children. Like, look how many children I have, wife. <laughs> Husbands, go home and do that. Tell, tell me how that goes. It's like he got his feelings hurt, and so he has to go boast and brag and tell everyone how much stuff he has. It's really silly. Verse 12, moreover, Haman said, oh, it, it, gets, it gets worse. He says, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, that Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Haman's got some problems. Look how special I am, wife, friends. Look how special. But I can't enjoy this so long as that Mordecai won't stand and tremble in front of me. Now here comes the good advice from his wife and his friends. Verse 14, they say, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Right? This is, I'm thinking maybe the wife was just annoyed with her husband complaining and was like, you know, you could just kill him. I wouldn't have to listen to this anymore. But envy kills. This is where envy ends up. Now, do you remember what happens next? The king can't sleep that night, and he calls for the book of records to be brought to him. And if you read early in the story, Mordecai had actually saved the king's life by providing information about this assassination attempt. Uh, But nothing had been done for Mordecai in return for his service. So the next day, the king calls Haman in, wanting to bless Mordecai, and he asks Haman, Hey, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman, being the proud narcissist he is, thinks the king wants to honor him. I mean, who else would the king want to honor but me? This is Haman walking around. So he says, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman wants to be paraded around like a king. Little does he know that this honor is for Mordecai, his arch rival. And to make it worse, the king tells Haman that Haman is the one who has to give him the royal treatment. So Haman has to put the royal robe on Mordecai. You think, this guy's head has got to be about to explode, right? It doesn't stop there. Queen Esther, at this banquet, reveals that Haman has plotted to kill the Jews. Not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. And the king is angry. And he sentences Haman to be hanged on his own gallows and then gives all that belongs to Haman and his household to Mordecai. Talk about a reversal. Talk about God's poetic justice. 
Do you see how envy works? How pride comes before the fall? Envy is building a 50 uh, high, a cubit high gallows to hang your rival on only for you to be hanged on it. This is what I mean by envy is suicide. It's killing yourself. So envy will kill you. And so why will you die before the time, Christian? Why will you let envy for that person that you compare yourself to to fester in your heart? Confess it. Repent from that. Do whatever it takes to kill that before it kills you and brings destruction on your whole household. So why are we envious? To summarize, well, the reason we envy is because we are proud. We are entitled. We think that other people owe us, that we deserve praise and glory and honor. We want to stand out. We want the accolades. And we look down on other people in order to make ourselves feel better. So if that's why we're envious, how then does love conquer this? How could Haman's heart be changed? How could your heart be changed? So question three, how does love conquer envy? All right, if the story of Haman and Mordecai is a cautionary tale about envy, the story of David and Jonathan is an exemplar of love conquering envy. This is an amazing story. So uh, think about Jonathan for a moment. He's the son of King Saul. He's a prince. He's a valiant warrior. We're told in 1 Samuel 13 that Saul commanded 2,000 warriors and Jonathan commanded 1,000 warriors. So, you know, he's his father's son. He's the king's son. He's a stud. He's courageous, too. He goes up and fights the Philistines. He is the protege and heir apparent to the throne of Israel. But as you know, his dad, the king, sins against God. And the kingdom is torn from him. Right? Jonathan didn't do anything. This is his dad's sin. And then suddenly, this ruddy shepherd boy shows up on the scene named David. He's the new kid in town. And what do you know? He slays the giant Goliath and becomes an overnight celebrity in Israel. The ladies love David. They praise him and sing songs about him. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. He's killed lions and bears and Philistine warriors. He's humble too, right? He's strong. He's courageous. And on top of all that, he wrote some of the Bible. <laughs> you going to compete with that? <laughs> He's like, I'm just writing some music. They'll sing it till, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. So he's this, you know, he's a stud. He's gifted in every way. Oh, and on top of that, did I mention that God anointed him as king? Right? He's anointed as king. He's so, he's so righteous when Saul starts trying to kill him. Eventually, Saul himself confesses, you are more righteous than I, he says in 1 Samuel 24, 17. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Right? This is all pre-Bathsheba. Right? Things are going to take a dive later. But, but when David shows up, man, if you're Jonathan, talk about being upstaged. 
right? People liked you, but I mean, look at David. Look at David. And here's the most amazing thing. Reading this verse just blew my mind this week. Jonathan chooses not to envy David or feel sorry for himself or grumble to God that his father's sins have changed the course of his life. Oh, woe is me. No. Instead, it says in 1 Samuel 18.1, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Talk about love conquering envy. Love does not envy. And Jonathan loved David. Jonathan looked out for David. You'll see Jonathan takes off his clothes and his gear and he gives it to David. Jonathan protects David from his own father. He helps David get to the throne. He recognized that God's hand was on him and he cheered him on and rooted for him. He risked his life for David. Talk about love. Talk about friendship. Talk about brotherhood. Do we have those kinds of relationships here? Or are you still being petty? Love does not envy. And how much more glorious would it be to share in the joys and triumphs and successes of one another. I want that for you. I want that for me. So what does this look like for us? Love conquering envy in your life will usually start with with you having to humble yourself. It's, It's not fun to humble yourself. That's that's where we have to start. Laying down our pride, laying down, giving up what you think you are owed. And it means being willing to pray prayers of blessing upon that potential rival, that person you compare yourself to. Start praying for them. Are you in competition at work for a promotion? Well, work hard to earn it, but know that God sees your heart. And it would be far better for you to not get the promotion and live under God's blessing than to get it at the expense and cost of your own soul. God sees. Who do you look down on or make fun of? Who do you judge and compare yourself with? Have you allowed the spirit of envy and conceit to turn into gossip and slander or exaggeration or just embellishment? You remember the Corinthians, they pit Peter against Paul, Apollos against Jesus. They pit the gift of tongues against the gift of healing. They they were comparing blessings. And this should not be so amongst us. We should take the words of Jesus to heart when he says to Peter, Peter asks him, hey, is John going to live? Is is he going to not be a martyr like the rest of us? And Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I say that to you today. 
Why are you counting other people's blessings? What is that to you? Don't you follow Jesus? Hasn't he promised? Yes. <laughs> Hasn't he promised to work everything for your good? So what is that to you? Follow your, your God. What has he called you to do? Do that. Stop looking over the fence into other people's yards. Unless, of course, you hit a wiffle balls over it and need to go get them. Then, you know, knock on the door first. I say that because we were doing that at Ty Knight's house the other day, <laughs> which is quite fun. Back online. Sinful comparisons are a sign of deep insecurity. And if we are Christians, we should not be so sensitive and insecure. We should be able to rejoice when other people surpass us. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal of parenting? For your kids to be smarter, more godly, more wise than you? Don't you want your kids to be way better than you are and your grandchildren better than them? And can't we want that for one another too? Doug, uh, Pastor Doug says something about, you know, if you're like leading an institution and let's say you're transitioning or stepping away, shouldn't your prayer be that once you're out of the picture, people look back on that and say, that's when it really took off? See, that's a, that's a humble prayer to pray. That's not a fun prayer to pray. Because, right, we, we care about our name. That's how proud we are. So will you humble yourself? Will you humble yourself? Christians of all people should not be insecure. We should not have this unmet desire for glory and love and attention. Because we have a love that goes deeper than Jonathan's loyal love for David. A love better than the best marriage, the love of a parent for a child. A love that comes from God. So do you know this love? This is the fuel that can allow you to humble yourself. This love that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus. He laid down his divine prerogative and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. While we were self-obsessed, Christ's love was self-effacing. Isaiah says he was marred beyond human semblance. Also that you could see the face of God and not die. If anyone could have complained about not getting the glory he deserved, it was Jesus. But Jesus never complained. Jesus never envied anybody because Jesus was secure in the love of his father. And so, Christian, will you be secure in the love of your father? Will you be secure in the love of Jesus Christ? This is the only cure for envy. The great hymn says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. CCD, love does not envy. Love is content with whatever God sees fit to give, and hasn't he given us everything? Let's pray. Father, we do confess our envy, 
our sinful judgments, our dissatisfaction with the providence uh, that you have given us. And there are many in this room who have had very hard providences from your hand. And I ask that we would be able to see, as James says, that uh, we should consider Job. And the end of the Lord is compassion, tenderness, and love. And so will you quiet us with your love? Will you content us so that we don't envy anybody? Amen. Amen. The charge is this. Count the blessings God has given you. He's given you a lot. Start to count them, not the blessings of your neighbor. And if you thank God for everything, you will find that envy has no place to take root. Receive now the benediction. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.